Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Mr. Va- Mr. Frank Van Gansbeck, who is a professor of practice at Middlebury College. Frank has more than 30 years of global senior executive experience in corporate finance and capital markets. Frank contributes articles to Forbes, connecting dots in international markets, sustainable finance, and fintech. Welcome, Frank. You're very welcome, Jill. So uh, first of all, thank you for hosting me at your uh, distinguished uh, podcast series. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to start with uh, one of your articles um, entitled Climate Change Versus Bank Loan and Debt Capital Allocation Methodology, uh, in which you you say in a study commissioned by a UK newspaper, Richard Heed at the Climate Accountability Institute in the US identified 20 fossil fuel companies that were responsible for 35% of all energy-related carbon dioxide and methane releases worldwide. And since the Paris Climate Accord was signed, financial institutions worldwide provided 1.3 trillion in bank loans to the fossil fuel industry. Yet only three firms in the S&P 500 produced renewable energy, representing less than 1% of the S&P 500 market cap. So you ask, is there a solution to this brutal and ecosystem-threatening cycle? Could things be done differently in 2020? You want to talk about that? Sure, uh, Jill. So, um, um, but in order to position the article, I would love to actually give a bit more background about the, uh, my interest in terms of you know, things that keep me busy yeah. and things that I try to understand. So uh, as you mentioned, I try to uh, connect some of the dots. Um, so... At the moment, I think my real um, interest, you know, is focusing on gaining a better understanding how we ended up in this current predicament, you know, from a historic economic and financial market perspective, right? So, and as importantly, it's also exploring at some of the pathways which may uh, assist us in providing us with more sustainable economic and financial outcomes, including a better quality of life, yeah. right? So that's, um, and um, I would love to, connect this, I think, to get this in the broader perspective, to start it off, to consider the uh, what some economists have, you know, uh, mentioned, the Buddenbrook 
dynamics. And that's mm. referencing to a 1901 uh, Thomas Mann novel. So Thomas uh, Mann was a, a German author who got the Nobel Prize for Literature, and in which he um, is describing the story and the decline of a very wealthy family, the Buddenbrooks, mm. and it's narrated over four uh, generations. So, and it's inspired by a true Hanseatic uh, bourgeoisie family. Yeah. And so if we transpose that family novel over the period, so from the end of the Second World War to today, we match about 75 years concurring with, you know, uh, Thomas Mann's four generations. Mm. And uh, so these four generations, actually, what does that mean? So I think you have at the beginning, you have very, very hardworking grandparents. You have um, or great grandparents to start off with and, you know, continued effort by those, uh, by, the uh, by the grandparents. And then you have start, uh, you know, slowly but surely, you know, the parents starting to benefit from accumulated wealth. And then the last generation actually starting to fully uh, consume that wealth. So I think that's, and again, I don't want to uh, harp here on the current generation, I think on the country, I think it's just the development, it, it's a cycle yeah. that happens and that we've seen through history, you know, uh, reoccur. And so this is where we are today in 2020. I think this is an element, I think, as I said, this this um, depiction of the, um, uh, the cycle over four uh, generations or uh, life generations. Now, on top of that, you know, we had the last 20 years, we have experienced three once in a century kind of events, the 9-11 mm. attack, the 2008 financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Mm. So with the 9-11 attack, we have entered, you know, two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, each had a price tag of about $4 trillion, and with a sustained fear and a war on terrorism, including a major NSA let initiative to start tracing uh, every citizen's communication. Yeah. Secondly, in 2008 financial crisis, we experienced the largest financial bailout since the 1930s, uh, with a Federal Reserve response in generating about the printing of money, and I come back to that later, so exercise, uh, and still leaving about 3.5 trillion of assets on the Fed books, uh, mm. on the Federal Reserve's books, uh, its balance sheet, prior to the onset of the COVID-19 crisis. Right. So this 2008 crisis disseminated jobs and wealth and installed an endured fear about the economic future of the current generation and its offspring, right? Mm -hmm. This is still the place we're still, you know, uh, suffering from uh, the consequences of that uh, major calamity. And now we're faced with a global, you know, the global public health crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, yeah. and costing so far the Fed to intervene to the tune of at least uh, 3 trillion, and we're still counting, I think there's more uh, stimulus packages coming, uh, finding its way. So, but again, by means of money printing yeah. to finance the much needed stimulus packages. So the current crisis has now entailed basic fear about life or death, and by extension, the future fate of life, not to mention the psychological trauma, which might ensue uh, the, uh, the sustained periods of lockdown and the fact that we can't meet and that we still have to keep the six foot, uh, sorry, six feet uh, distancing mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. Now, out of these three major events, we have as a common denominator, complacency. Yeah. Right. So in 2001, it was the inability to act upon detailed garnered intelligence. Mm. In 2008, it was the outcome of several issues. So to name the most important ones, the fully deregulated financial sector, and I'll come back to that later on. Yeah. The two accommodating 
central bank monetary policy, the fact that we have seen enormous monetary growth and leverage by banks also uh, fueling to the uh, to your uh, at, at your introduction reference, you know the fossil fuel companies, mm-hmm. and then the absence of sufficient prudential oversight by uh, regulatory authorities. Right. And now, in 2020, we have the outcome of the gutting of basic public health provisions over the years, coupled with a overall loss of ability to effectively managing, manage a nationwide crisis. Mm-hmm. So we are faced with our predicament. So that's, and you know, just to give some statistics here, I mean, just some numbers to give it all where we are today, sure. 2020, right? And to frame again, this, I'm, I'm trying to frame this overall um, environment. We yeah. have a total debt in the US approximating about 27 trillion. So it's 27,000 billion. We have a budget deficit close to about 3 trillion for the first 10 months of the 2020 fiscal year. So there's a difference in calendar year and the fiscal year here. But, um, mm-hmm. So we have um, yeah, approximately 5.5 million COVID-19 infected people. 175, uh, sorry, 175,000 uh, people who died in the process. But we also have um, 1.7 million uh, people who suffered from substance abuse, right? And substance use disorders, 1.7 million. Yeah. Right? So uh, we have uh, for 2000, uh, sorry, for yeah, 2020 alone, about uh, 1.8 million of new cancer cases and an estimated number of 600,000 plus deaths this year alone, 600,000 deaths as a result of cancer. Mm. We have, regarding climate change, we have 412 parts per million in carbon dioxide particles in the atmosphere. In 1950, so again, I'm coming back to this four generations. So at the beginning there, we reached, you know, we had about a level of about 300 ppm. So we have more than a a 33% increase in the carbon dioxide yeah. uh, readings. And as a result of, uh, as you know, and as recently as this week, we also are seeing the highest record uh, temperatures in, in Death Valley uh, and more than 160,000 people, you know, displaced as a result of two wildfires uh, in, in California. So the impact is now indirect and it's there in the face of us, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and so we have this crisis today. It's composed of about six different dimensions. So public health, financial, social injustice, the inequality, so the 1% against the 99%, the climate change crisis, and then uh, you know the one that we also have, the distrust in our institutions and the functionings thereof, and international trade. Yeah, so, you know, um... When I think about this, Frank, I think I think it's it it paints a horrific picture, right? Uh, and you don't know where to start. Uh, but when I think about this, you know, uh, climate change is a foundational issue, right? Um, which, mm-hmm. if if you don't intervene optimally, you don't really have a chance to intervene in the future, right? Um, things like cancer and COVID. Um, you know, are things that we can work on. Uh, it's going to take some time. And then the the debt itself, uh, correct me if, I, if this is just my perspective, is, is more of a financial um, issue. So when I think about these three items, debt, uh, disease, and climate change, 
they're not really uh, comparable things. Do you mm-hmm. see it that way? Yes, but they are interconnected. So I think, you know, I would agree with you that climate change is a absolutely, you know, I think it's a existential threat to yeah. our ecosystem and our well-being and everything else that we can actually deploy from there on, right? So, um, but there is a, the, the, the whole thing is also that this climate change is also, it's an element of man-made intervention. And so now you could, I mean, again, I'm coming back to my four generations. And I said about the reading of, we only had, as I said, in 250, this 300 ppm CO2 reading. Yeah. And today it's in excess of 410. So this is all as a result of um, some elements that have taken place that allowed this to happen. So this is, as a result, we have an excess release of greenhouse uh, gas uh, in, in, in the atmosphere which is creating this increase in, in temperature, right? So I'm thinking and this is where we are seeing these outcomes of uh, climate change fatalities, as I referenced, you know, in the California or in Death Valley, you know, the highest temperature uh, to date on record. So, um, but there, there, is, there is a connection to that, right? So, and, um, and again, I would concur with you that climate change is absolutely the overarching kind of element of, of uh, concern right so to tackle that yeah i mean the problem with climate change as you know is that you cannot see it <laughs> so so policymakers with four-year horizon four-year decision horizons uh you know this is not in the top of their um top of their uh, focus right uh it's something they can deal with four years later at least from their perspective um and so we will keep pushing it um in four-year increments uh, down the down the road, and at some point, an intervention. We will reach a point that an intervention is not really feasible. Correct. I think you know there is, uh, of course, there is an element of denial or not, you know, uh, willingness to recognize, you know, the challenge, uh, the challenge at hand, right? So there is, um, but it's also again where I come back. I think where we have some mechanisms embedded into our financial economy, into the financial markets. Yeah. So um, um, maybe let's, you know, I think some, some elements that I want to focus on in, in, in that regard. So um, you mentioned on the fact that we, um, we only have three companies for renewable energy in the S&P 500 to date, right? So this is a, uh, you know, an outcome as it is. So again, given that, that, that crisis situation. So, but I, um, I want us to come back in, again into perspective in uh, the sense that we do have um, a lot of money has been created since, the, um, since we have the 1971 Bretton Woods yeah. kind of, you know, the breakdown of our financial, sorry, not the financial system, but the gold standard. And so before, up until between 45, as a result of the signing of the Bretton Woods uh, Treaty and the 1971, uh, the breakup of that agreement, we had before that a tie, you know, uh, between the amount of money that was outstanding and, you know, a finite amount of uh, gold. Now, with the tensions that arose, um, especially the budget uh, tensions that arose as a result of financing of the Vietnam War, that, you know, uh, link had to be uh, broken up and had to be released. So, yeah. Yeah, so let's go into your, your paper. So Monetary Authority and Natural Capital, 
what does the future hold? So you have some uh, some ideas there. So natural capital can be defined as the world stocks of natural assets, which include uh, soil, air, water, and all living things. Mm-hmm. And you say economic and financial markets fail fail to adequately incorporate the depletion rate of our natural capital. Now we can see that in a very very clear way in fossil fuels, uh, but there is a whole set of, you know, uh, uh, decisions made where you are externalizing the cost related to uh, the stock of uh, stock of assets the world holds uh, to private profits, and uh, and this has been going on for a long time, right? So that is the that is the issue that you're trying to trying to um, analyze. Correct. But the thing is, I think, you know, what needs to be understood, so what needs to be understood there, I think, in, in, and I'll make that connection, I need to have, like, one little um, connection or dot that I'd like to connect. Yeah. I think it's contrary to public belief, there is also a money creation function and ability that has been extended to commercial banks. So it's, you know, in public belief holds that, you know, money is being created by a central bank. And as a matter of fact, the central bank actually creates two types of money. So first of all, it's the uh, physical coins and notes. Yeah. And that's to the tune of about two trillion. And then the other one is in the case of bailout, as we've seen in 2008 and in COVID-19, that where we have a digital line of credit extended by the treasury to the Fed that allows it to print money out of thin air, right? So there's this right. and start buying, you know, assets or inject stimulus money, as we have seen with the receipt of the uh, cash checks uh, of about uh, 1,200, right? So in, in, as, a, as a result of the recent yeah. um, uh, stimulus packages. So in between, you have commercial banks who have the ability by their extension of credit, the function of you know, granting credits, that it can create money. And that's an ability, so it's not a central bank, it's, it's the commercial banks that have the ability to create that money. And we have seen that since the 1971, there has been an increase, you know, enormous increase in leverage yeah. that was actually you know, a result of commercial banks extending uh, credit uh, to that term and to the magnitude that we have seen. So now we have this enormous leverage and we can see correlations with this amount of money that was created and the extension to, uh, of credit to fossil fuel co- uh, companies, as well as, you know, um, allowing for a extraction-led economy, right? right. So we, we, we see this, we can actually, this, there's a complete match as of the 1970s and, you know, all the way up to, um, you know, 2020, where we are today. And so the argument I was making in, in my article is that we have at the moment a capital allocation, whether it's in the debt markets or in the equity markets, which is completely agnostic of the counterparty, its waste or its carbon footprint. Yeah. Right. So if you do have two companies like Exxon or Unilever, at the moment you take into account some counterparty risk and you take into account some you know, um, what we call idiosyncratic, so firm-specific kind of characteristics and some overall market, you know, dynamics into account Mm -hmm. to set the price of that credit uh, or of the equity, the capital that's been allocated to those, um, to any company that is, you know, wanting to raise money. 
And so we are making full abstraction of the cost of externalities. And yeah. So I have a question on that, Frank. So um, if I understand this correctly, you know, that the Fed and the banks, uh, the Fed is using the banks to, to uh, lend money to the capital seeker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to the extent that the capital seeker has no incentive to internalize public costs, um, can we really make a make a change there? Uh, you know, I mean, you. So I think what you're arguing is that you could actually take the Fed's policies and and make it optimum for uh, you know for 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 society. But isn't Fed more of a you know sort of a tactical player in the sense that does the Fed have any view as to what societal welfare uh, might be? Yes, I think um, it's a very good question. So there are multiple players in yes. this field, but there's also what we call an eighty twenty rule, right? So I think you know who are the people that have actually the clout to transact in the view of our you know, the calamity that we're facing today or the different calamities, but, you know, of which climate change is the most predominant one. Yeah. And so we can look at from the angle from uh, the bank and from the institutional investor base, right? So, or the in- institutional uh, asset uh, and, you know, the commercial bank. So I think if we look at these three type of sectors, so the, um, let's take, uh, you know, a BlackRock. BlackRock currently is managing about, um, six and a half trillion of assets or you know has six and a half trillion of assets under management so the ceo larry fink is every year he's making a statement about you know how um profit and purpose should actually be connected by you know the companies in which they would like to invest right and so the and in one of these engagement priorities as it's mentioned i think some of the element that it's specified is also the environmental risk concern that a company should embrace, mm-hmm. right? So there is a link or there is a very good intent or there's a articulation of intent by a very large player, not to name it, um, you know, BlackRock and CEO Larry Fink. Yeah. And the allocation of the six and a half trillion. And so now to the extent, you know, but the question is to what extent is that articulation of intent actually be crystallized into action right. and to tangible impact on the capital allocation and equity sphere, right? So to what extent does uh, BlackRock say right now, you have a carbon footprint of X, you are depleting our carbon reserve, you know, um, of, of Y. Um, so the, um, the whole question is, you know, I think I will, prioritize my capital allocation to a more nimble, in this case, it might be a renewable energy player compared to, for example, a fossil fuel um, company. And so one of, you know, your outcomes is, as you know, uh, you have observed. So I think we only have three companies of the S&P 500 that are related into renewable energy. And so um, we see changes uh, right now. I think, you know, the overall S&P 500 now represents all the fossil fuel com- companies combined, you know, represent less than, than um, you right. know, Apple. Uh, so Apple, of course, you know, now getting <laughs> two trillion. Yeah. But that's, that's the fact, that's one element. But at the other hand, I think, you know, where are the re- renewable energy companies? So you, when we're talking about capital allocation, 
why is it what is holding us back what is what is you know what are the impediments you know for us to allocate that capital from fossil fuel to re renewable yeah so right? yeah let so, me ask you something on that uh, frank so um you know the the 6.5 trillion using blackrock is just as an example uh, that mm -hmm. capital allocation decision uh, by that intermediary is really going to reflect what capital providers want. So if shareholders are looking for tactical returns, the, the intermediary will allocate that capital according to the shareholders' wishes, right? And so aren't we back to a point that unless, unless we have systemic change, meaning everybody in the in the market capital seeker capital provider uh want to internalize this cost that everybody knows exists but has a perverse incentive not to internalize it uh i don't know if the intermediary will have any a, a, any impact on it well I think there's a yeah. couple of things there. I think that, you know, I think that I would like to observe. So I want to come back also on, on the central bank, but let's come first back on the fact that there is no willingness or no apparent yeah. willingness to internalize these externalities of carbon footprint, right? So I think right now, what we are seeing, we have enormous disclosure projects that are, you know, underway. So we have carbon disclosure project. We have the TCFD. So this is a uh, an acronym a very weird acronym, you know, uh, as a result of the G20, so the top uh, 20 nations in the world, which have uh, appointed Michael Bloomberg to start up this TCFD. And the TCFD stands for um, uh, Climate Stress Test Related uh, Climate Financial Disclosures. So now every single listed company under the G20, all, you know, apply for all, each of the G20 nations have to undertake a um, several scenarios under which climate change um, are, you know, uh, different uh, tests or, or uh, sorry, scenarios are yeah. being depicted. And they have to assess the impact on their balance sheet, on the supply chain, on their customers, and uh, on, on the company themselves, ultimately, right? So I think, and, and they have to start allocating or building sufficient solvency or capital to withstand those uh, crisis um, yeah. occurrences. Now, that's an element um, that's one. The, so the TCFD is one. So you have, I already mentioned, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, carbon disclosure yeah. project. And so there is this overarching initiative to push every single company to come forward with right. disclosures. Right. So with, with what we have, so now you can actually build or starting to build a universe of best in class kind of performance in the overall uh, universe of corporations. So this is the Unilever's, the you know the uh, Apples of this world, or you know the um, uh, Exxon yeah. Mobiles. So now you can see, now you can establish this universe and this distribution of best in class. What you could come up with is also you say, okay, now you and let's go back to the equity. We have in the um, uh, which I detail in the article. So I think now we have a um, methodology that's dating from the 60s, um, you know, for which the, uh, uh, the people that uh, came up with, with, so it was Markowitz uh, who, um, um, who received the Nobel Prize in, in the 90s, uh, and, you, know, for, uh, you know, for the analysis that was undertaken. So it's, you know, in essence, it's trying to establish a relationship 
between, uh, again, some the risk-free rate and a uh, relation to the volatility to overall the market returns, um, the correlation there with, with the, the, the firm's own performance yeah. that comes or generates a certain cost of capital. Now, again, what we have in that function, we make full abstraction of the externality cost. So what we could do is we could add it as a function, again, of our observations, our readings to the CO2 PPM or to the, uh, the finite uh, carbon reserve you know, that we have. Um, so this is the, um, the 420 gigatons that we currently have as a reserve, as a carbon reserve. And then we can say, okay, this is, we're going to add, let's say four to 5%. And again, uh, you know, we could undertake more uh, precise uh, research to, to calibrate the exact level. And then we can actually consider rebates as a result of the rankings in this universe of best performing corporations. You know, for the best performing, you could actually take away the full, you know, carbon margin that would be applied to four to 5%. Mm -hmm. And so for the people that are, you know, heavy, um, uh, he which have a very heavy carbon footprint, you would leave or they would not be able to abate any of that cost. So what you would do as a result of this uh, calibration uh, methodology or change in that methodology is that you would leave a higher cost of capital for those companies that don't you know, undertake any incentive to reduce their carbon footprint. And as a result, you, know, you would increase the hurdle rate or the discount rate so it's in a way, it's a, a, the proposed methodology is, is a way to decarbonize, you know, the discount rate that is applied, you know, in, in fairness opinions at the moment, it's in M&A transactions, in private equity transactions. So we all use this private, you know, these mm. fairness opinions based on the discount rate, you know, um, of which, you know, it's, it's emanating from the capital asset pricing methodology, but we are not taking into account that carbon uh, footprint. So this is a solution, you know, straightforward, uh, easy to... Um, to apprehend, or to, sorry, to comprehend and to, 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 to calculate. So, um, and that's a one way whereby you would starting to recognize and reconsider the allocation of your capital as a function of people's carbon footprint and our observations of CO2 PPM uh, in the atmosphere, as well as, you know, the remaining, you know, carbon uh, CO2 reserve, you know, set at about 420. Yeah, so, so, you know, sort of top-down regulatory requirements uh, regarding disclosures, um, the methodology is very clear, Frank. You know, if you, if you add a premium to your discount rate uh, that reflects the, the carbon uh, cost, things will be better. But what incentive will, you know, will be there? I, say, I can see if I run a company, I can say, all my projects will have to have, when I do a net present value, the discount rate is my cost of capital plus something. And that plus something, mm -hmm. I can tell you how to compute it based on you know, the, the carbon footprint that project has, right? Mm -hmm. I can implement mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. as a CEO in a, in a company. But when you think mm -hmm. about the economy, uh, <laughs> the issue is, uh, unless there is a fiat of some sort to say you have to do it, um, mm -hmm. every company has an incentive not to do it, right? And so, so I don't know what the mechanism would be for us to get there. Well, I think there's yeah. twofold. There's twofold. One is you come back. Um, it's not the company CEO. I think. It, I think it, you know the the burden 
actually lies with the institutional investors because they also have a fiduciary yeah. duty, right? So if right now what we're doing is, as we said, we're agnostic of this carbon footprint. So we are using a much slower, sorry, much lower discount rate. And as such, we're ballooning the valuation yeah. of a company as it actually, you know, uh, might be in the future. So with the potential onset of, and I said potential, you know, climate calamities on these corporations, you have actually um, this or you know, ill-represented your, um, your shareholders, your investors in that regard by underestimating the carbon cost into your discount rate. So that's first, that's the fiduciary duty. And I think, you know, which each institutional investor, you know, should take care of. Secondly, I come back on, you know, the central yeah. bank and the Fed. And ultimately, I think, you know, there we have right now, we've seen with this quantitative easing. So again, for people, yeah. uh, I want to, you know, make that use very, uh, so it's this digital virtual line of credit provided by Treasury to the Fed and allowing the Fed to use this digital line of credit to inject money as part of the stimulus packages. And so we have done this for 2008. Now we've done this again to the tune of yeah. $3 trillion for the COVID-19, right? So imagine now that we are into, uh, we are having major climate calamities that occur, mm -hmm. right? And as such, that the Fed has to intervene in order to make whole uh, states or um, individuals because of, you know, the, the, the insurance companies are in, uh, no longer in a position to um, pay out the, the uh, compensation for uh, the, the insurance holders because they have an insufficient yeah. capital base. So now it's on the burden of the central bank to fall back on this mechanism of quantitative easing to create that stimulus to pay for, you know, the people that suffered from the climate calamities. But that's, you know, that's a common good, right? So we all have a stake into the value of the underlying currency. The more we're going to debase, the more we're going to fall back on the quantitative easing policies, the more we debase our currency, the more I think you know, we, we, we end up or we potentially end up with a depreciated currency, uh, potentially uh, creating inflation if we go back to the 1930s in the Weimar Republic in Germany. So that's a potential link that we have to... Uh, and as such, there's an interest from a central bank uh, both from a monetary policy perspective, but more importantly, from a supervisory perspective, to make sure that adequate discount rates yeah. are applied into the assessment of, you know, corporates. And especially when you do lend money, you know, in the case of banks, because uh, that's, you know, we have to make, you know, we have to be very careful here. So it's a, the Fed, the central bank is actually, you know, uh, the, the supervisory authority are the banks. Uh, sorry, the supervisory authority is the Fed, which are supervising the commercial banks. And in the case of, you know, the institutional investors, it's more right. the SEC. So you would have an element whereby the Fed in conjunction or, uh, you know, uh, collaborating with the SEC would actually impose this kind of, um, you know, change in, in, in valuation. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea, Frank. So let me let me see if I, if I understand this. So at time equal to zero, the market is not going to price in the, the cost of environmental degradation, right, into, into securities, debt and equity included. Uh, but because Fed is, a, is increasingly uh, a major player in the market, whether it's quantitative easing, um, open market operations, discount window, interest rate mm -hmm. setting, what you're suggesting is that as a major player in the market, 
uh, Fed could impose something on the market in such a way that the market prices will ultimately, not at time equal to zero, but at, at, at a future time, will reflect that cost? Correct. I think, you know, what we see with the Fed, the Fed is now the market maker, the sole market maker in yeah. town for uh, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and already for a very large extent, you know, for corporate uh, bonds. That's, that's already a given. So especially when we cop to the corporate bonds, they could apply, they could apply that methodology. So when they purchase the, um, the asset from an institutional holder, they could set a discount rate that takes into account that carbon footprint. They have but it ability. has to be almost security um, by security though, right? Well, I, I think in, in a sense that you, um, you, could, you could set the, um, uh, in the case of, of the, um, 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 in, in the case of the yeah. fixed income, I think you have, you could also apply a discount rate that, you know, would reflect the best in, in class performance. So I think, you know, it, it would be individual, you know, individual by individual, but that's yeah. how you price, you know, a, uh, you know, an instrument. I think it's, it's not, you know, overall, you know, it's not, you know, you're not doing it by sector. I think it's, you do it by individual corporation or by individual issuer. And again, we do have the disclosure material. Uh, we also will have shortly uh, trace, which, um, you know, of which carbon tracker is one of the, um, the prominent uh, kind of players. A twenty-four-seven, you know, uh, online kind of uh, tracing capability of greenhouse gas releases, you know, uh, on a global scale and at the level of a fishing boat, right? So I think this is, you know, a great kind of gauge or a great kind of um, element to measure at the individual level of a corporation uh, or company that's issuing greenhouse gas, uh, you know, um, sorry, that's releasing these greenhouse gases. And as such, you could, you know, price it for, again, for non-compliant companies or people that have a, carbon, carbon, a heavy carbon footprint, you could price, uh, you know, that into your, uh, in, in, into every individual uh, pricing. Now, of your so, you know, so some people have preferred, you know, th this won't be uh, a market mechanism in the sense that it is, you know, it is disclosure, it is disclosure specific discounting. Uh, it'd be more mechanistic, you know, so, so what, what has happened to the carbon tax idea? Yeah. So um, what we have seen in, in the, you know, I think, you know, we have a Nobel prize uh, in 2018 that was awarded, um, uh, you know, for, for the, the introduction of the carbon, carbon tax, but we still, um, we have still we haven't seen anything in in you know any any tangible measure that has been introduced. We had at the beginning of this year, um, I think it was more than four thousand economists asking for the introduction of uh, of such uh, carbon yeah. tax. Uh, so nothing has happened, and um, so the, it it might have to be with of course some resistance by. Um, uh, some lobbies and by some uh, vested parties that, you know, of the introduction of that. The, the same actually applies for, um, you know, the offset markets. So the offset markets is a um, part of a uh, market whereby if you have actually saved uh, a release of a certain greenhouse gas, you can go to yeah. a market and, um, you know, claim a credit for that. So, and that, you know, allows a, a company that has been less, 
what has been more profligate into uh, the, the, the release of its greenhouse gases to buy those uh, credits. And we've actually seen, you know, with the COVID-19 crisis, enormous drop in the prices of, uh, you know, those markets. And uh, there's also in, if you look from a global perspective, you know, in terms of volume, 80% is, you know, taking place in the Europe uh, or in the uh, Eurozone and only 20% uh, located with you know the markets in uh, California and and uh, right. Canada, so this is um, again that's this is very unfortunate that we do have again we see these calamities happening you know as yes. we speak, and yet financial markets fail, you know completely fail to represent capture those uh, observations into uh, the functioning of the market and into the pricing of the different instruments, be it you know the claim in the claims market or be it in the fixed or the equity uh, market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you can understand from an incentive perspective why that's the case. Um, but, you know, conceptually, everybody sort of agree that we need to do something. Uh, but uh, so you have a, you have a market-based mechanism out there that people haven't really systematically implemented. It cannot be country by country. I know that some countries have carbon tax, but it is not useful unless unless the entire system implements it, right? Well, what you're suggesting is that rather than waiting for a market mechanism to kick in worldwide, why don't we take, you know, the biggest player in the market, in this case, the Fed, uh, and, and create some some level of discipline into the market? Correct. And again, so... Um... There's, there's a quote here I like from Milton Friedman. So only a crisis, you know, actual perceived, you know, will produce real change. So and when that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying <laughs> around. So this is also a bit of, you know, my my um, idea to, to share some of those ideas on the platform, on the Forbes yeah. platform. But, you know, wanted to come back on there are elements where, you know, with, you know, where we have to start thinking. So we, we can't deny we can't be proud of our footprint in 2020. So we have this six headed, as I mentioned at the beginning, we have this yeah. six headed you know, crisis. So what are some of the ideas that we could embrace? And I think one of the notions is to um, introduce the notion of what I would call the caring economy, the rewarding economy, the healing economy, because we are in pain, you know, whether it's you know, our economy as a nation, as yeah. individuals, we need healing, we need caring, absolutely. And so, um, so there are some notions in there, I think, that we, you know, could incorporate in, in the sense so that, you know, uh, given our stresses that we can see in our daily, uh, in our daily lives, you know, but especially in, in the realm of climate change. So there is an element whereby a central bank, and in this case, the Fed, could issue rewards, right? And rewards in a sense that you could... Um, be be provided with an incentive to start you know regenerating part of your economy so let's take an example so um uh, now you have a private initiative in it's a company uh, it's a startup company uh, it's called regenerative network so region yeah. network and you know they are providing an incentive to farmers who are you know working the topsoil of their land and so the topsoil, by working the topsoil of the land and by moving away from synthetic fertilizers, which are contributing to the overall heating up of our earth, you know, they are giving an incentive to 
enlarge to magnify the, sequest the sequestration or the, the, uh, the carbon sink mm. potential of the farmer's land. So that could be, that's an enormous benefit, you know, for us as a society, but also for the Fed in future years, having, it could prevent having to intervene, as I had referred to, through quantitative easing, having to uh, print money in order to pay out uh, people suffering from climate uh, caused uh, yeah. calamities. So you could give right now all kinds of incentives right. uh, to make sure that these efforts are being um, uh, being uh, uh, you know initiated. The same for uh, working on on wetlands uh, restoration. It's you know this it it could add you know to flood uh, defenses as we've seen last year with the Mississippi uh, flooding. We had a major disruption in right. the supply chain. Right. These are things as a human race we see as a civilization. We see we 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 can. Um, so there's a solution out there if we actually, you know, uh, again, start to think outside the box and start to be yeah. creative about what those challenges are and how we actually provide the right incentive for people to reallocate resources and capital to those beneficial kind of. Yeah, activities. yeah. I want to quickly touch on, Frank, uh, one of your uh, other Forbes article, the Fed and digital currencies, what's possible? So mm -hmm. what's, what's a digital currency? Yeah, so a digital currency is actually a currency for which, you know, it's not tangible. So when you do have a coin yeah. or a note, that's tangible, it's cash, right? So, but now what we have already uh, with, with a digital uh, currency is, is actually the currency that's not actually uh, account-based or that's not actually, um, or that actually can be provided by a virtual token. So that's, these are, you know, kind of two, two kind of uh, essential yeah. elements to uh, to to a digital currency. So so it has a lot of implications, right? If um, if digital currency becomes a standard in the future, uh, it has implications for dollar. It has you know a lot of ways that uh, macroeconomics could could change, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's it has a very very uh, major kind of yeah. impact um, in the sense that I, I think I want to come back on the ability for a commercial bank to print money by the extension yeah. of credit, right? So now if a central bank is joining that party of credit extension by you know, using or issuing digital currency, it is actually uh, claiming for part of the pie that's currently being uh, owned by, by the commercial bank. So there is this kind of calibration of market share between the commercial banks and the mm. central bank. But you know, I want also to, um, to use this as an opportunity for two different things. So I think right now with uh, the decline in the dollar and, you know, the rise in the gold prices as we currently are experiencing, I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, um, the reserve currency status right. of the US dollar. And one of the elements, again, I think there's this uh, short-term and long-term, sorry, this sh uh, short-term elements to be considered in the long-term. So in the short-term, I think, you know, these uh, risks are maybe over uh, or exaggerated. <laughs> But in the long term, I think what you could do with a digital currency or a central bank issued digital currency is, you know, um, speak to the appeal of a population at large. So you could incorporate one of those elements, a solution to climate change and a solution to, for example, um, financial inclusion. So there's a lot of people that don't have a bank account. So right now you could actually, with this creation of a digital uh, currency, you could actually extend that to a... Um, uh, part of the population that you, that are currently not reached or that you can remove the remove the intermediary in some some way. Yeah, 
Correct. Yeah, I think you definitely, I think this is the whole thing. This is where I come back on my first point. This is going to be a whole debate being issued is, you know, what's going to be the bank's position, commercial bank's position? Are they going to be, you know, um, interpositions uh, or, you know, in, in, are they become the intermediary between the central bank and the individuals or are they completely going to be left out? And are the tech companies, the big tech companies, going to, you know, uh, take their position as a yes. facilitator of, you know, these digital accounts into the, um, into the, uh, into the market. So that's going to be, that's going to, going to have a huge impact and, and discussion is going to ensue <laughs> because it's, you know, important, it's hugely important, uh, you know, for uh, the way we make progress, but also how uh, market share is going to be defined for commercial banks. Yeah. So uh, when there are winners and losers in a policy change, um, it's always, always tough to move anything. But I really like this idea, Frank. Um, it also gives the Fed, as you say, more flexibility and more power. Uh, so, so to the extent that uh, I guess this is a big if, uh, the decision makers at the Fed has an overall view of societal cause and optimum capital deployment, and it, I would argue that it's a big if, uh, then they could actually implement it because because they they have a lot of power in this situation. Correct, uh, and I think you know the, at least well the, the, there's many considerations that you know uh, thought should given uh, or thought should uh, be given to, but I want to spend on you know again on the innovation aspect. So as I said, you could with this digital currency you could actually provide incentives for people that contribute to the. A regeneration of our commons, yeah. right? So clean water, clean air, clean uh, soil. So the, these are very important elements that you could use this uh, new type of monetary policy. On the other hand, I think you know we, one one you know has to be also mindful of the concentration of power. If all of a sudden now you're going to give yeah. a central bank right. this ability to to issue that digital currency, so what is going to be extremely extremely important is you know the uh, now you have to. You know, exert kind of uh, prudential power or prudential mm. supervision over that activity, and that's where Congress or you know a appointed institution by Congress has to come in in order to defend. Because ultimately, what counts, uh, uh, you know, counts is you know the the preservation of the intrinsic value of the national mm. currency, right? So whether it's a virtual currency, I think, or a fiat currency, or whether it's become a digital. Um, or a central bank issued a stable coin or digital coin, uh, I think whatever. But I think ultimately what counts is, you know, for the welfare and the well-being of people is, is also that's in their interest. That, you know, and actions are taken in their interest. So even including, you know, protection from, you know, the calamities that might arise from climate yeah, change. Yeah, these are big uh, and interesting ideas. Uh, hopefully we can move in, move in one direction. Uh, where, where do you think the Fed will end up uh, in terms of its balance sheet by the time we are done with COVID? Well, it's at currently standing at seven mm -hmm. trillion. Um, so this is a uh, could easily I see another you know I think we could easily see ten trillion right. uh, so another three trillion you yeah. know without without major impact. So uh, and this is something what what I think we have seen so far I think in with the COVID-19 crisis, where we stand at the moment, I think the markets have still not fully, in my view, digested or interpreted, you know, the default risk that still has to be translated into the numbers. Yeah, I want to, yeah, I want uh, to ask you about that. So there, there are two 
two views on that. One is when Fed pumps liquidity into the market, stock markets go up. But I've seen some papers that say it shouldn't really have any effect, neither neither on the long end of the interest rate nor on the stock market. Um, where, where do you where do you come down on that? Is is this really a Fed liquidity driven event in the stock market? Well, I think so in the sense that you know the the market uh, senses that there is backup yeah. uh, for even to the point where we have you know where we've seen you know private equity. Uh, being backed uh, or bailed out and, and backed up by a central bank. So I think what you do give the signal in terms of your, again, you're coming back to the, the risk allocation mechanisms or capital uh, uh, allocation mechanism is that you do give some, you feel that there is some support uh, being given by a central bank, by your the sole market maker, and you continue, you're being sustained in that, uh, your, your capital allocation yeah. process, right? So there's no there's no signal being given, okay, uh, now we need to change, and um, that's you know somewhat perverse <laughs> kind of. That's these are perverse outcomes yeah. of QE. While QE is absolutely needed in times of crisis, there are some very very deep perverse outcomes. Uh, you know, uh, as a result of of QE, and you you only have to look at the fact that you have right now you have a real estate market which is inaccessible for uh, millennials. Right. Right. You know, a millennial as a result, because you had so much liquidity injected and it went either into the stock market or it went into real estate. And as an outcome, you have um, real estate prices, which are, as I said, non, non-accessible for the majority of the millennials. You have also, um, as a result of, of the, you know, the over some buying, and this is mostly, you know, uh, uh, U.S. has not been impacted yet by the negative interest rates. But now you have in large parts of the world, in Japan and in Europe, pensioners with negative interest rates mm. in their portfolios. And they are afraid to spend because they are... They run uh, out of money. Yeah. Discounting. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. They're, 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 they're fearful of you know, not having yeah. enough money. And as such, you, you're in a downward, you know, downward spiral of you know, your larger segment you know, that should be consuming and should be spending... Yeah. Uh, you know, that is, is afraid to do so. So this is also, you know, with a digital currency, the introduction of a digital currency, you could, you know, uh, consider mechanisms whereby, you know, if you are uh, age dependent and you had a certain amount of uh, fixed assets in your portfolio the last mm-hmm. three years, that a certain minimum floor would be provided in terms of interest rates. So that, you know, would be, you know, this is what I would call innovative monetary policy. I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, that digital currencies would actually procure and would offer. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Frank. Uh, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with all your work in this area. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really, uh, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, also the best of luck with uh, your endeavors. Uh, super endeavor, <laughs> thank you. by the way. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.